welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, so my guests on the podcast just keep getting better and better and I'm delighted this week to have with me Robin Simmon who is a two-time Emmy award winning former PBS producer specialising in documentaries and TV series. She's done loads of different things for various networks including PBS, NBC, Discovery, CNBC, HGTV Reels channel including the PBS series Voices of Vision. She's done loads of different things. Uh, recently produced a direct five television special for the Reels channel on Michael Jackson, Robin Williams, and the opioid epidemic in Hollywood. And the reason I've got her on the Health Tech Podcast today is that her latest film, Do No Harm, which premiered at the Cleveland International Film Festival, is exposing what she calls the Hippocratic hoax, which are the conditions driving medical students and doctors to suicide. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So, Robin, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing wonderful from sunny Santa Monica, California. Very nice. That's <laughs> normally my first question, so you beat me to it. California, what's, what's the weather like out there? Very English yeah, question to ask this. I, it, you know, they, they say living in California, especially Southern California, is like living on a movie set. It's always, you know, sunny and uh, <laughs> 75 degrees. So it's a tiny bit overcast today, actually. So I don't know if it was just setting the mood for a chat with you from London <laughs> or, or what. That's it. That's it. I've taken the weather with me via the airwaves, yes. Robin. That's what I've done. Um Cool. So it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm so excited to talk about your background and everything that you've done, obviously, in the media industry with what you've created, and particularly um, with the documentary that obviously we're going to talk about today. Um, but I think the first thing would be, if you can, to tell our listeners a bit about yourself and a bit about your background and what led you up to, I guess, an interest in healthcare. Yeah, I started off as a TV news reporter. Uh, in different markets, working for different network affiliates all over the U.S., um, mainly in Texas, and then wound up at the PBS station um, based out of Miami. And from there, uh, started to produce and direct national documentaries. So, uh, but, you know, public television is just that, you know, they say it's like working for the post office, you know, once you, <laughs> once you learn your craft, you sort of spread your wings and uh, yeah. make a go for it on your own in independent production. Although I must say I love public television and I work a lot with public television. Uh, in fact, this program, Do No Harm, this film will air on PBS stations in the U.S. and we have a deal with APT International uh, for international public television distribution. So uh, so I love PBS and, and some of my independent programs have wound up on PBS. So but I, I you know I love different topics uh, everything I did an LGBT film I'm looking at my posters uh, <laughs> I did a I'm film about you now. Yeah, yeah. I just have to look at the wall. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did a film called Behind the Blue Veil about the uh, Tuaregs, which is a nomadic culture mm. in West Sahara, the Sahara, how they're caught in the war on terror and they're 
culture, like many others uh, of the indigenous nature, are are fading. You know, we're losing these cultures. So that was one. And then I uh, did a film. My first independent film was about Werner Erhard, who started Est back in the 70s, uh, which was like uh, the beginning of the multi-billion dollar self-help movement. Mm. And then, you know, I uh, was working on another film and someone sent me an op-ed piece from the New York Times about these two young doctors who jumped from the roofs of their respective hospitals back in 2014, within a week of each other. And I come from a family of physicians. My grandfather was a family doctor. Uh, My uncle was a surgeon in New Jersey. I have two cousins at the Cleveland Clinic. So... Uh, they, you know, they were the pillars of our family, and I know somewhat of the difficult road to get through medical school and start practicing. You know, of course, you have to go through your residency, and I know how brilliant they are too. And so mm-hmm. I just, I, I couldn't understand why, after all of that, why these two brilliant young physicians would think that the only logical uh, Way out, I suppose. Yeah. Solution to their problems was to jump. Yeah. And it, it just set me on a journey that I just had to find out the causes and why there was so much secrecy around suicide. Nobody back in 2014 was talking about it. Then, after these two suicides, there was like a flurry of articles, uh, the New York Times and other papers, but, um, you know, largely within the medical system, it was hidden. It was brushed under the rug. There's a huge stigma uh, about suicide. And, you know, it's international. It has nothing to do, you know, with our crazy uh, healthcare system, you know, that's managed care. You know, it contributes to it in the U.S., but physician suicide is a pandemic. And um, there are commonalities when you look at why it's happening all over the world. Uh, so I just, you know, I just needed to know why. And then beyond that, I needed to find out, well, if we have doc- doctors who aren't functioning mentally and physically, how does that impact the quality of care that we as patients receive. And when I was able to draw a link between the health and well-being of physicians and medical students Mm. and uh, medical mistakes, which is alarming to say the least, then I knew I had a film that everyone should see because most patients are unaware when they go into the hospital how many hours, let's say, a person has been on shift? They could be, you could be treated by a resident who's been working a 28-hour shift or longer. And, you know, after 16 hours, there's a lot of research that says your brain is not functioning well after 16 mm. hours. So why are these residents forced to work these long shifts? They're not learning anymore after they're so burned out. It's just detrimental to 
their health and the health and well-being of, of patients. So yeah, it so when this all came together, it became a film that uh, was a public health necessity to uncover and expose. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. And I think interesting in the way that you explain that as well is obviously not coming from a medical background yourself, although a lot of your family were. I think the fact that obviously your family are on that side means that you have empathy for for that side of the, of the fence call it but also you come at this as a patient as we all are patients as well and you can almost hear the shock in your voice to hear what would be pretty standard things for us like yeah you might have done a 24-hour shift you might have done 14 hours, you might work through the night and done a bit more the next day and like yeah that's kind of normal or you know all these things that, that are quite shocking obviously to hear as a patient are so normalized by the medical community like you know to feel that tired to operate under those conditions and i don't mean just surgery i mean just general operation of the human body even to do your job you know it seems that the first part of this journey for you and obviously this documentary was i suppose those initial shocks of of all those things but then obviously it goes a bit deeper right and you you have to you end up understanding quite a lot of what actually contributes to this that leads up to something as horrific as a suicide. So as you were going through this and learning more and more, obviously getting over that shock, what were the the elements of it that you found? And I mean this from your, I guess your, your, your patient point of view, your documentarian point of view, how do you plot the, the line between somebody starting as a physician to then ending up at the point of suicidality what did you uncover as the steps to go from from there to there and and what is it about the system that leads physicians to that well it all starts in medical school you know it's it's a very shaky foundation that we're building for future doctors um and i was shocked to find out how poorly medical students and even physicians are treated <laughs> by their peers yeah. I mean, and, and by their superiors. I mean, you know, oh. I don't know if they have the, the pimping, you know, put in my place, the, yeah. bu- the bullying, uh, you know, just stripping them down. You, these are people and I'm including you because you're a physician yeah, yeah, yeah. are so brilliant from kindergarten you're the ones that are getting the gold stars so you're used to being successful and you're used to being on top so then you go to medical school and from day one you find out you are average <laughs> yeah the, the bar is reset certainly yes, the bar there is, is a very new much hierarchy <laughs> you're it's at the a bottom shock. Of it. <laughs> you know i mean it's a shock to their systems yeah it is you it know is. Yeah, is. so so that's day one of medical school and then you have to endure a lot of bullying uh you know just being stripped down embarrassed you know the the word pimping put in my place mm. uh you know where where you're just demeaned in front of your colleagues when you have you're so fragile you know because you're already realizing you know you've got a scrape to just to, to stay with it um then you're dealing with isolation 
on top of that, at least in, in this country and other countries, you're dealing with debt, huge, you know, student loan debt. Uh, and then on top of everything else, you're dealing with sleep deprivation. Mm. You know, you have no life outside of studying. You've had to isolate yourself from everyone. And all you do is study and, you know, try to survive. So all of these factors for medical students, it's like a time bomb. Mm. So within the first year in this uh, country... You know, these medical school students go in about average, you know, in terms of their mental health. And within one year, 25 to 27 percent are considered depressed, Mm. like clinically depressed and suffering high rates of anxiety. That's year one. And from there, it just gets worse. And then when they go into residency, you know, there's so much cutthroat competition where literally your peers are trying to prevent you from succeeding because the competition is so great to get into certain programs and specialties. Yeah, the resources aren't abundant. They're not, they're not infinite. It's finite. So everybody yeah. Does, yeah, has to compete. Yeah. So you, you can't, you know, be human, really. You can't do anything that shows any kind of weakness for example, your depression. So you're you're hiding your sleep deprivation. You have to hide you know, any kind of you know human condition that you may be experiencing mm. because it'll make you look weak. And so mm. it just you know. And then when you get into residency, now you really experience sleep deprivation as you never have before. The depths of which no one you know, outside of medicine could probably handle. I mean, it's, you know, and, and in this country and probably in many others, you know, residents are cheap labor. (laughs) So, you know, they are worked, you know, as hard as they can, hard as possible until they drop and many drop, you know, you know, that car accidents among residents leaving the hospital is far higher than Mm. the general population. I mean, you know, I often tell people on the road when I take the film, I say, you know, if you go to a bar and a patron leaves drunk and gets into an accident and dies, that bar could be held liable. Yes. Why why aren't hospitals, hospital administrators held liable? Uh, There, there's a, a study that said, you know, sleep deprivation, it's like being drunk. The blood alcohol yeah. level is equivalent to being drunk. So why are these, you know, young doctors, you know, being sent out to go home to sleep for a few hours only to come back? Also, you're now on top of everything else. You're now treating patients. So you are dealing with life and death while you're incredibly sleep deprived. Mm. And, you know, one problem, one miss, one glitch could ruin your career. Mm. You know, you lose a patient, you make a mistake, everybody's human. Um, But when you're sleep deprived, you're basically set up to fail. Mm. 
So it just continues, you know, from there. And it's just unnecessary. It's unnecessary uh, to, you know, have young physicians moving into practicing physicians work like this. Every other profession has limits on how many hours you can work. And there are all kinds of, you know, rules about bullying. And uh, so, but, but none of this applies to medicine. And doctors are taking care of people who could die. So yeah. why are there so few regulations? I totally agree. And, and I think there's a lot that obviously chimes with me and my background and, and things that, you know, I, I graduated in, what was it, 2010? Um, so yeah, a, a while ago now, I suppose, and, and things change. And, and I know European Working Time Directives have applied to us where, hours are restricted and the rest of it. it it doesn't necessarily mean that the pressures aren't the same it doesn't necessarily mean that the job is any easier and i think whilst there are definitely differences between the us and the uk i'm sure we have far more in common than than we do that 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 sets us apart one thing that i suppose i want to add to that and i think you know one thing that that is touched on is the modern world and the pressures of social media and I guess the, the the free flowing of information, you know, you talked about competency being on, you know, an anxiety of doctors as well, but obviously in, in an age where information can be spread so quickly, do you, you know, talk to me about what you found in terms of the modern world being, an increase of pressures because I, I know there are people listening that that will say you know it's not as bad as it was in my day and you know that's a that's a classic one that makes people feel ten times worse. Um, right. And I know I felt that when I when you know we were told that all the time when we were phones like oh you you never had it as bad as we did and, and we were like well you, you had you had hospital full of well people just sat in after right. surgery for two weeks and right. every single person in the hospital is sick for us and we've exactly. got to jump on it quickly and there's compensation culture and now if you get something wrong it's on social media that your doctor did this that and the other so yeah t- did you yeah talk to you about those those sort of pressures that you may have found. And and we haven't even touched on these electronic medical records, uh, you know, that were designed, you know, to reduce medical errors and create efficiency have been a nightmare. Yeah. So, they, you know, these uh, programs were designed not for the patient-physician relationship. So, you know, you're checking a hundred boxes, you know, just to, you know, fill out a form and you're not with the patient because Mm. you've got to fill out this form to get to the next screen. So it's been a huge failure these electronic medical records. And that's why a lot of older physicians are retiring early. They they just can't adapt to it. You know, younger Mm -hmm. ones are trying, but then they go ahead and change the entire system. So it's, uh, it's a huge challenge. And if, if you weren't as brilliant as you are, you just, you know, couldn't even hack it because Mm -hmm. it's so, so ridiculous. And now you're, you're taking care of patients and you're dealing with these electronic medical records and it's life or death. Mm. So the pressure is incredible. You know, charting takes hours after you are with your patient. You see physicians up at night, you know, till 10, 11 o'clock at night, even if they stop seeing patients at six or seven, they are just up just trying to, yeah. you know, 
and arguing with insurance companies and all that. But in terms of social media, it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's easier to ruin a reputation because everyone is so connected. But on the other hand, it's really exposed a lot of what's going on. It's helped. Yeah, and, interesting. And, and we talk about it in the film how, uh, you know, young physicians and senior physicians who, you know, were really isolated. I, I say, you know, you're like islands, mm. unlike other professions like police officers or firefighters where there's this real sense of camaraderie. Physicians go in, they do their rounds, they, they can't wait to leave, to go home, to sleep. Yeah. And and hospitals, you know, they they love this. They don't want this. A lot of them are getting rid of, you know, the lounges <laughs> um, so people can't get together and talk. So what social media is allowing is for people to get together. Could be two, three in the morning after you finish your rounds. But they're checking on their Facebook. They're joining these listservs yes. and forums. And they are finding, you know, that sense of camaraderie. I know that, you know, we did when the COVID-19 started, we switched from live screenings around the country to virtual screenings. So we had people from all over the world that were joining in and the chat box on Zoom was just blowing up. Yeah. Every virtual we had it we had screenings every Sunday for mental health awareness month. Oh wow. And and um the chats were blowing up because people were finding each other and saying, yeah, I had that too. I experienced the same thing because they really feel so isolated. So this is the positive side of technology and, and social media that it's bringing to pe people together like never before. And it's a movement. You see, you see people joining forces, creating new types of care to, you know, for their own mental health and uh, well-being, mm. as well as their patients. Uh, we're seeing these kind of groups come together, start online, and then move, you know, into the real world. Yeah, and, and I, I like that. And I like to hear that there is obviously technology that that is playing its part, albeit through social media and nothing directly in, in this, in this example. But it's like we were, to, I mean, you and I were talking off air just, just briefly, weren't we about, you know, I was saying that, that there aren't that many technologies that I see that are directed at making the lives of clinicians easier. And I think it is something that is quite a big part of healthcare. There's obviously technology that's built to help patients, help diagnosis, help treatment, and that is obviously a huge motivator for entrepreneurs. But it's it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's not much yeah. for clinicians. And I think it's often, I, I said this, we did have one person on here, um, uh, Chris from IntelliCare, which is a fast scaling staffing solution out in the US um, with you guys. And they are helping nurses with um, with staffing and, and, and taking burdens off and allowing them flexible time to work. And they're noticing huge benefits in mental health and all these different things. And that is a really interesting one that's, you know, specific for, for clinicians. But I do think it gets it's missed because it's really difficult to put a business model around it and actually um, <clears throat> and actually make a change like that, particularly in the UK where we have public health systems and actually, 
you know, incentivizing people to look after them is very tough because ultimately they're paid publicly and you can just squeeze them for everything they've got. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's a but there, shame. You know, James, there is a warning about these online, you know, a lot of organizations like the AMA in this country yeah. are coming up with these online modules for, you know, building resiliency and yeah. burnout and, you know, these are nothing more than uh, Band-Aid approaches. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> it just reeks I of mean, that. Someone told them to do right. it. It was in a recommendation. And it's, it's like a they're checking a box, exercise. you yeah, know, you um, do, yeah, here, do it. And you know what? It just makes physicians feel worse that they don't complete the modules. It just <laughs> one more thing on their uh, plates to do. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, that's not the solution that's needed, but yet they're using these online programs that are made available yeah. to your, the entire community. It's available to you. And they're checking off the box like, okay, well, we're providing services. Yeah. So, it's cra- it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a shame because it does, it it does just make the problem worse in the sense that I, I can remember these things. I can, I can remember having to do all my online learning things and particularly because we changed hospitals so much, you've got to do your induction and you've got to do an online induction. And once you, you need this login for this platform and this login for that platform. And then, oh, by the way, you need to get all of your competencies done. So by the way, this is completely up, up to you to, to sort out, but you need to run around and chase all these different people in the hospital to get them to fill in this thing online. And they need to log in and do this and yeah. you need to make sure that they do it. And you're just like, oh my goodness, like I've got to do all this as well as my day job and as well as revising for my exams and as well as everything else. And you know, in my first, in my first year of being a doctor, I'm still like waking up in the middle of the night going, Oh my God, did I check those bloods? Oh my God, did I, did I forget right. to tell so-and-so to do that? And did I hand that over and all that sort of stuff? And yeah, it can, it can, it can really pile on. I can, yeah. I can remember vividly the times where it really piled on and I can, I can remember being, being on, on call and alone and loads of things going on and having to deliver bad news and then run and, Oh, Clark patients that were that were coming in, but then deteriorating very quickly, and then multiple people deteriorating at the same time. And my senior just wants absolutely nothing to do with any of it. And oh my goodness, it was I can just I can remember it so vividly of just this this point I got to of just collapse. I, I suppose you'd call it. I I literally just broke. Like yes. all of a sudden, it felt like I had loads to do, and then all of a sudden I broke, and it felt like. A, a weight had been lifted, but then all this emotion just flooded me and I just had to walk outside the hospital and just burst into tears because I was just a mess. And I was just I mean, Even people broken. at the top of the class, um, you know, I heard from them saying they literally, you know, pulled over the side of the road and just started bawling yeah. and crying. Yeah, yeah, I can believe it. Or worse, they start to have suicidal ideations. Oh and then, you know, because they just wanted to stop. They just, you know, they wish yeah. they would get a disease yeah, to get off this merry-go-round. And I just fear with COVID-19, the mental stress that young doctors to senior doctors are experiencing now. Because, you know, you were saying, you know, you have to deliver bad news to a patient. Well, imagine there's no family around. Sometimes you're the only one that can even be with the patient and it's all on you to provide this 
kind of support. Yes. And you're doing it over and over again and yeah. losing patients right yeah. and left. And what I really feel is so necessary, and I want to put pressure on all of these hospitals, is that you have got to provide mental health counseling. Yeah. Like a given, you know, they're going to have PTSD type symptoms. So, mm. you know, don't make it like, oh, if you're experiencing, you know, depression or you feel like you're going to crack, mm. you know, Tuesday at 2.30 to 3.30, there'll be a psychiatrist. I mean, no, that that's mm. stigmatizing. Yeah. You have to make it okay for physicians. It's a given that what you're experiencing is going to create emotional distress because you're human. Yes. So we are going to provide ongoing support. We'll be there every week, every Friday from 2 to 5 p.m. Just drop in, yeah. you know, opt in, opt out. But, but let's just get together and talk because it's a lot. Not not creating a barrier, which is yeah. a restricted time that no one can do because, yeah. you know, they're working, you know, 26 hours yeah. a day. Yeah. So, you know, really make it work for your people. So they're utilizing it. I, I remember just quickly that I remember I was at Des Moines University and the president said, oh, this is so impressive. We have this mental health clinic and it's available to all students. And I said, well, well, what do you have any measured results from separating this mental health clinic from the physical health clinic? Um, and she said, Oh, no, no, but it's there if people want to use it. Then I meet with the students hmm. and they said, Yeah, Robin, you know where this mental health clinic is? It's in the administration building. <laughs> do you think on the fourth floor? And her office was on the third floor. Do you oh. think anyone's going to get in that elevator and push four? Yeah, no one. But but they just make it available and they think they're doing something. So I really challenge every hospital administrator to look at what they're offering and to see if it's really working. Mm. And I really I really like that because also, you know, just thinking out loud here about what that would do, it it, it normalizes the fact that you can go to those meetings to f for support, but you can also go there to support others. And the same person mm -hmm. in 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 two separate days will will do both of those things potentially. You don't need to always be the person that's seeking support or giving support. You can be both, and I think it can be peer led, and it can. You don't need to have a, a, a you know a zero out of ten day. You can just have like a four or five, and you can still go there to be propped up. And yeah. I, th I think, I think that's just it. And I think that what you said about normalizing is super important because mm -hmm. there are people that don't need that and that's fine and that's right. great. And, and, and that is wonderful. But similarly from a, I guess from a recruitment perspective of clinicians, I don't think you can expect everybody to feel a certain way and everybody to have such diverse skill sets like you're not going to have amazing communicators amazing academics amazingly resilient amazingly everything that people have weaknesses in different areas and so by having a diverse skill set or a diverse range of skill sets within your clinician cohort, there are going to be people that require support at, at different levels to do different things. There are people that are just naturally more empathic than others. Um, 
I'm, 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 I consider myself an empath. I, I really feel the emotions of those that I'm with and going through and speaking to. And I, I, I really take those on. And that was something I, I often, I guess, burdened myself with as, as, as a doctor in the early stages. And it took me a while to train myself in compartmentalizing. That was a, that was a skill I had to learn. But it wasn't always perfect. And in those initial years, as I said, it broke me at one point because you deal with three really big, bad things in a row and it, it can overwhelm you. And I think what you've said there about, you know, those those peer-to-peer support groups would, would genuinely would make a huge difference. I actually wrote an article for Forbes. Um, it was a while ago now, um, but it was about how doc, it was. It was a, a report by I think the, the British Medical Association, and they'd done a report on mental health of, of clinicians. And uh, I mean, it was a huge amount. I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a huge amount were were having a lot of mental health problems and turning to drugs and by drugs, you know, right. alcohol excessive easy to access. All the, easy ex- for exactly right to access. Yeah. Yeah, which which I know is something that obviously you know you've uncovered in the documentary as well, and 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 it compounds with everything that you know that the the person from Harvard was saying about sleep deprivation, and you know all these things just compound on on top of each other and make things so difficult. And I think I just I just think from my position in the ecosystem as well as somebody that really champions technology, I think what you've said about the the social media support is is really important as well. I think. One of my friends actually got in touch with me yesterday to say that she, it was someone I trained with in anesthetics, that she'd had a really tough time um, with mental health and and was looking for support and all these different things. And I think obviously the social media side of things is, is one thing, but I would, I guess, say to the entrepreneurs listening that actually there is a huge challenge here. There is a lot that can be done. And I think the the most important thing is to try and find a business model through it. It's to find a payer. And I think to do that, as you've said, Robin, you know, speaking to hospital administrators and saying, look, these are the problems you're actually going to find. And potentially this is a policy thing. Potentially this is a lobbying thing to actually change where the accountability is. Like you said about, you know, bars can be accountable for sending people home that crash their cars. I think changing that accountability yeah. and making making institutions, employers who clearly have a duty of care, making them responsible and accountable if something goes wrong to their employees, I think is a huge step because if that was the case and hospitals incurred a huge fine, if these things happened, then all of a sudden there is a business model because actually you're now preventing this fine with some investment in some technology that can help so be that a platform that connects people be that things that speed up you know things in their day or, or whatever it is but i think it really would give some weight to to people trying to save clinicians time and make things more efficient and take things off their plate and you know increase capacity and all these different things if there was more accountability financially from from those administrators and i think yeah i suppose if there's it has to be a win-win you know i mean the it look it's about for the the hospitals they're trying to survive so it's about the bottom line um even though you know their ceos make millions of dollars Mm -hmm. uh you know somehow they're all struggling to survive (laughs) never quite understood that (laughs) Uh, but um, for the business, not in the UK, they don't. By the way, oh, right. that's <laughs> I think true. that's true. <laughs> they make enough, I think, but they don't, they don't make that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's unique to the system. Yeah, uh, but it has to be a win-win to you know do 
do things to improve the mental health of your community that that you know it makes sense financial sense to provide programs that help because it, they're looked at as like something that's going to take physicians away from making money yeah. you know doing tests labs seeing patients you know and and it can't be viewed that way it has to be viewed like you care about customer satisfaction right well this mm -hmm. program that we have will improve customer satisfaction and all of the you know the ratings that you're going to get on social media and and all these surveys that you know you really want to show how wonderful things are going here these metrics will improve mm -hmm. if you take a look at this wellness program that we can offer to your staff, your house staff, the community. Uh, it has to be a win-win. And it's it's not bull, it's true. Yeah. There are many surveys and reports and studies that show that if you improve the wellness of your physicians, don't beat them to death, but really improve their wellness, improve morale, that medical errors will will reduce and customer patient satisfaction will improve so everybody wins let's take a look at these programs i mean we use the film to around the country and even beyond we've shown the film in ireland and and uh, people from london we have a huge number of requests from australia we're trying to work that out israel so many places around the world and we're trying to say this film can be used as a tool to open a dialogue yeah about what's going on just that alone will help your community feel more bonded and then after we watch the film and we have a discussion about real solutions that we can implement now you're talking people feeling heard, morale will improve, and it won't even cost that much money. But let's all get together and figure out what works mm. for us. Absolutely. And you, you know what? I think, you know, from, from somebody that's won two Emmys and has now created a docu documentary to, to highlight this, I guess, thank you from, from the community of clinicians here in the UK for, for doing this. I, I think it, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. And, and to, to really shine a light on it, I think is, is so important. And as you say, it's, it's, it's there to open the dialogue. Um, and I'm, I'm genuinely really thankful for you to do this. You didn't have to pick healthcare. You didn't have to pick this problem, but obviously something as shocking as, as a double suicide has, has obviously yeah. led you to, led you to exploring this. And there's so much fear. There's so much fear that they, you can't speak out you yeah. because you'll lose your job. And I tell people, you know, I can't be fired. I cannot be fired by your hospital, Indeed. by your medical school, by your residency director. I cannot be fired. So, um, and nobody should feel so fearful of losing their livelihood because they see something go wrong and they can't do anything about it, especially when it's in the public's best interest mm. that they do speak out. Yeah. But it's really shocking to see the level of fear and how they use fear to keep everybody in line. That has yeah. to change. Yeah, 
And just to sum up, Robin, so it's called Do No Harm. It's obviously a documentary exposing everything that's going on in the healthcare system, everything that's taking a toll on physicians, leading them up to suicidality. Uh, you can find uh, a bit more information at donoharmfilm.com. And Robin, do you want to tell us where we can watch it and listen to it and download it, et cetera, et cetera? Right now, it's the easiest way is through the website, donoharmfilm.com. It's available to stream on demand, also on Vimeo on demand. You can search for it. Uh, it will be on Amazon within the next couple months. If you're a medical school or a hospital, clinic, nonprofit, medical society, and you'd like to have a screening for your community, a private screening, uh, just email us at info at donoharmfilm.com and we can talk to you about virtual events or in-person events for your community. That would include a discussion guide. So it's really popular happening right now, especially with COVID. We're doing it all over the world. Um, Robin, I must say thank you again for first of all for the film and secondly for coming onto the podcast. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for highlighting this issue. Um, I think you're doing incredible work, and I uh, yeah really look forward to your next film. I'm sure. I think you're <laughs> you're doing you're doing awesome work. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.